This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. Just before you listen to this podcast, a quick shout out to say that we are also on Patreon and you can follow the podcast there and get access to a new podcast that we're doing called the War Criminals Book Club. Sounds intriguing. Check us out over on Patreon where we're under Asymmetrical Haircuts. Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. When Kareem Khan addressed the UN Security Council on Libya last year, there was a huge emphasis on cooperating in so-called joint teams with other states, especially on the alleged crimes of human trafficking. Here we have a bit of Khan speaking at the Security Council. In September... We joined a joint investigative team in relation to human trafficking. And I think that's a very important uh, step, uh, and along with uh, the wonderful work of Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, as well as Europol. And that partnership is not cosmetic. That partnership isn't simply to tick a box and say we're building partnerships. It has already managed. It has already managed to pay dividends because only a couple of weeks ago, In October, that joint investigative team allowed very key individuals to be transferred from Ethiopia to the domestic courts of Italy and the Kingdom of the Netherlands to do with smuggling of people, uh, allegations, of course, that encompass uh, torture uh, and slavery in general terms, can be determined now uh, by domestic courts. Yeah, he outlines how they're working together, the International Criminal Court, with a big range of countries, uh, especially with Italy, with the Netherlands. And of course, since we're based here in the Netherlands, then we were really, really interested in what's going on here. And since we have an Italian producer who's joined the team, we're also interested in what's going on in Italy. So why don't you kick us off, Steph, with telling us about what's going on on the Netherlands front? So to get at what is going on in the Netherlands, I spoke to Gerben Wilbrink of the Dutch Prosecutor's Office at the first procedural hearing of an Eritrean man who prosecutors say is a famed smuggler operating out of Libya known as Walid. And I asked Wilbrink why this case of this Eritrean man who was extradited to the Netherlands from Ethiopia, why this case was serving in the Netherlands in a court in the provincial town of Zwolle, no less. What we saw in this investigation, it's uh, follow the money actually, that there are people in the Netherlands who, uh, in which we saw as uh, witness statements that they said, well, we were extorted, we had to pay money towards people who are in Northern Africa, in Libya, who are being held in camps and are due to be smuggled towards Europe. That's kind of statements we, we saw and then we, um, we put it in a broader light And we saw this business model of the the criminals. And the business model is that they uh, select people in Eritrea and they say, well, we can bring you towards Europe. You pay us a lot of money. Then we put you in trucks, very crowded, after after being paid within uh, Eritrea. And then the next step is that without the people knowing who are smuggled within Libya, they would stop, put the, the people in camps and say, well, this is our stop here, and there has money to be paid before we bring you towards Europe. And then there is contact between 
family members within the Netherlands and they're being forced to pay for the people within these camps in Libya to be liberated there to make make their way towards Europe so that that's how this matter came to light for us that we saw that people from the Netherlands were actually forced to pay to family members or relatives who were being held in camps in Libya and if these payments uh, didn't come to um, effect these people were also extorted were being tortured a lot of violence and that altogether these facts that we that we saw this this direct connection towards people from Eritrea living in the Netherlands and that that was ultimately a case in which we saw that we have to do something about that and we we, we decided to prosecute the people who are responsible for these these crimes and one of these people is the, the man today here in court and he's is suspected of participation of a criminal organization so here will bring really kind of outlines the case they have against Walid. In the similar case, they have the kind of top smuggler, the Walid's boss, a man known as Kidan, and they are also trying to get him to the Netherlands. And he is currently in the United Arab Emirates where he was arrested on a separate charge of money laundering, but the Netherlands have asked for his extradition. Uh, and Wilbrink will get back to that as well. But I also asked him you know, why Walid is facing charges of human trafficking and membership of a criminal organization and not more international crimes, such as crimes against humanity linked to this uh, trafficking racket that he's supposed to have led? Well, we have looked into that. We have discussed that also. It's, it's very complicated to prosecute for facts which are committed outside the, the realm of the Netherlands, even outside the European Union. We don't have any authority legal but also practically to investigate within Libya for instance. There are facts now on the indictment which is a criminal organization, the participation of that and by Dutch law the, um, to prove that we don't have to point out every fact towards every suspect that he has committed that individual crime. It's enough to prove that someone has participated in the organization and if someone else did the torture, we can also hold the other person accountable for that torture. It's more like a public accountability for, for that kind of uh, things. Within the war crimes or crimes against humanity, it was assessed by a legal expert that if we go along that way, we would need a foot on the, a foot on the ground within Libya or within Sudan, which is not the case at the moment. So, to make matters not more complicated as they were, we decided to prosecute under Dutch common law. So, they say that they're trying him with these things under Dutch law that would make it simpler. Then you would hope that might also make it faster. So, the next question, of course, was to Wilbrink, you know, when will this case be an actual trial? Because what we had before is this kind of Dutch thing where they have a lot of procedural hearings before a trial. But... Unfortunately, that's going to take a while, he said. Well, there is an, a second hearing that has been planned in April. Then the judge has also told today that in June there will be a hearing in which the defense lawyers can bring up their questions to, to hear witnesses or to have some further investigations. It is to be expected that the judge will approve witnesses to be heard by the investigation judge. So that will take some time months to be expected also because some witnesses will be abroad so that makes it more difficult 
On the other hand, there's also the suspect who is currently in uh, Dubai, and we hope within the coming months that he will be over to the Netherlands, so we can put those both cases together. So the second half of 2023 will be, I think, then we, we will see the hearing of what the defense lawyers have asked for, for the victims. Then hopefully, and by the end of 2023, we will have a final hearing here in court, or maybe 2024, but that's hard to predict at this time. But we hope that it will go rather quickly. I find it really fascinating that he said that these prosecutions can be done in the Netherlands because of this money connection, because money is transferring hands here, but also that they've got you know, a problem that they don't actually have the legal authority to investigate on the ground. But Steph, you were there actually at this hearing. What did the suspect actually have to say about uh, these allegations against him? Well, that was very interesting. He says that he is not the Walid that uh, we're looking for, or the Dutch are looking for, essentially. He's saying, yes, I am also known as Walid. I am just not that Walid. I am not a smuggler. I'm a good Christian man, and I would never do this to, to anybody else. Interestingly there, the prosecutors say, yes, he says he's not Walid, but also say they've shown him pictures, which witnesses have identified that the man in the pictures is the smuggler they know as Walid. And he has seen those pictures and says, yes, the man in the photograph is me. So the prosecution quite dryly said, we do not suspect that this is, in fact, a case of mistaken identity. But uh, he maintains uh, was a me. Okay, well, that's an interesting conundrum. Should we move on from the Netherlands? Because I think uh, we've also got a chance to have a look at this joint team, this way of cooperation in Italy, which is obviously one of the countries on the front line, which the Netherlands less so, in dealing with the actual physicality of uh, human trafficking. I've certainly read, I think Khan has already mentioned in that opening clip that we have that some big fish were due to be put on trial in Italy. And we're very lucky that we have as part of our team now, Margarita Capacci. Hi, Margarita. Hi. Margarita's uh, joined us as our producer. And being Italian speaking, we said, why don't you try and get hold of the prosecution in Italy and ask them what's happening? So what have you found out, Margarita? I could speak to Giorgia Righi, who is the um, Italian prosecutor and one of the names behind the preliminary investigations. And after that, she is often the prosecutor in court, but not this time, because the case of Gebru has been moved to the um, prosecutor office in Catania. Who's the case against? The case is against an Eritrean trafficker accused of um, handling the traffic between Eritrea and Ethiopia and through Libya and then to Italy and to the Nordic countries in Europe. He's called Gebre Medin Temeshen Gebru. Wow, it's one of those names, isn't it? I know. Uh, should we just call him uh, Gebru from now on? Yeah, and the case has been moved to the Office of the Public Prosecutor in Catania because that was where the first disembarkment of people handled by his organized team happened. And she told me more about how this case came to be in a way. Nasce in realtà da precedenti indagini che vengono svolte dalla Procura della Repubblica di Palermo già dal 2013. Il primo caso è il cosiddetto caso Lampedusa che riguardava uno sbarco nel quale erano morti in un naufragio più di 300 migranti e da lì sono partite le indagini un pochino più strutturate. 
So what is she explaining there, Margarita? Can you help summarize for us? Because I don't think we all speak Italian. What Giorgia Righi said is that the case that sparked the whole coordinated investigation back in 2013 concerned the landing in which more than 300 migrants died in a shipwreck. And from there, a more structured investigations and organization that managed migrant traffic from Libya to Italy to Sicilian coast along uh, the central Mediterranean route. And what kind of evidence were they getting in order to, to show that? To map how the criminal organization acts, they have been uh, collecting a lot of telephone tapping. And initially between the um, traffickers and then connected to that between family members and many, many victims. This makes me think that it's kind of the experience that they have with mafia trials and understanding organized crime. That's why they, they've been able to gather the evidence like this. Do you think that's true? Yeah, and also connected to the mafia trials, they also had one of the first, and actually the first, Eritrean informant. And he also gave a lot of information, and he was handled the same way as a mafia informant. And so it's interesting, because in the Dutch case, they also spoke about these transports that arrived in Italy, in Lampedusa, and things like that. So there, there are like five, I think, in the Dutch case, five crossings that are mentioned. And now in the Dutch case, you have Walid, who they say is kind of the manager of camps, and then his overall boss is Kidan, who runs the whole scheme out of Ethiopia. But where does Gebru fit in? What kind of role do Italian prosecutors say the suspect detained in Italy has? In this precise case, Gebru is accused of uh, facilitating illegal migration, and he is not accused of um, torturing or human smuggling, but he was one of the Hawaler. Oh, yes, that's something I heard in the Dutch case as well. So this is this Islamic banking system where you give money to someone in some countries in an informal banking system and then, then somebody else, in, he calls somebody in Ethiopia or in Libya who then pays out this money to somebody else. It's an informal banking system. And Gabriel was somebody who helped to run that or, or what? Yeah, he was one of the leaders of this system. And yeah, Giorgio Righi also explained me in great details. But yeah, that is well, how Wala is. Yeah, so he just basically took money from people who were being extorted to pay money for the family members to make the safe passage, as Will Brink explained how this scheme worked. Part of it is smuggling, then people are abused in the camps, and then in the camps, the smugglers call relatives in who are already kind of safe in European countries and try to extort money from them to get extra money for the crossing over to Europe. And how many people are meant to have been kind of victims in this human trafficking enterprise that was going on? I mean, do we have a, an, a, an idea? You've said kind of 300 people died when they, when they arrived at, at one point, but do we know the numbers of victims involved? Uh, yeah, the 300 people was back in 2013, and after that they collected a lot of telephone tapping from many victims, and I asked uh, Giorgia Righi, but she wasn't able to give a number just because they collected just so many, so many conversations, and very often they don't know who he is the victim. Often they are identified, but they couldn't identify all of them. Is this, have they kind of wrapped up their investigation, or is it still ongoing? Is this the only trial that we would expect in Italy? No, this trial is part of a way bigger coordination, and they have already arrested 14 men. Also, some of them was a bit easier to arrest because they are on Italian soil, and they are handling this part of the traffic. And some of them was a bit way harder because they were still in Libya or Africa. And two more men are on the run. 
from this group of Eritrean traffickers that are active in Libya. And the Dutch are, are hopeful that they might have a trial in this one case they have early next year, an actual trial. What about the Italian cases? When, when do they expect to handle those? Well, Italian justice system is not well known to be very fast, so they expect it to take a few years, like two, three years at least. And what about the practical problems that uh, the Dutch said how difficult it was for them to operate on Libyan soil? Do the Italians have the same, same difficulty? It's really hard on the one hand because for the um, Italian justice system, they need to have a name and surname and a date of birth to be able to prosecute someone. So the moment they are active on uh, uh, Libyan soil and there is no cooperation with the Libyan authorities, it's really hard sometimes to identify people. And that is a very first obstacle because without an identification, it's impossible to move forward. So we heard from the Netherlands that they find it quite difficult to do any work on the ground in, in Libya to actually conduct their investigations there. Is that the same problem for Italian prosecutors? Yeah, they very much have a similar problem. And I asked Giorgia Riga about it. What she says is that it's really hard to cooperate with the Libyan authorities and that makes it difficult to identify the suspects in the first place. But that is a real obstacle to the trials because for the Italian legal system, you cannot prosecute someone if you don't have a name, surname and date of birth. So um, they have been struggling with identification, especially when the suspects remain in Libya or other African countries. Was there anything else that she said that uh, really struck you? Yeah, on the matter of cooperation, actually, she said that in her opinion, the biggest goal of the joint team would be to involve authorities in Libya and in Eritrea and Ethiopia in the future. I find this all really fascinating. Thanks, uh, Margarita, because we've actually also got the element of the International Criminal Court involved, which does have some direct dealings with the Libyan authorities and so on. Yes, and I tried to get the Dutch to explain to me how exactly they were cooperating with the ICC, but uh, Will Brink, which I won't play you, was very vague, saying, oh, you know, we get statements from everywhere, all kinds of organizations, and we include them in our findings, and wouldn't say exactly uh, if he got stuff from the International Criminal Court. So I asked him directly, like, would you would you accept statements from people who said something to the International Criminal Court? And he said, yes, they would, but he's not going to tell me if they did here. And because this case is focusing on people, those relatives who are actually in the Netherlands for that money, he doesn't really need them because he's got those people in the Netherlands for Dutch investigative judges to, to, to question. Well, he might not need it, but we decided that for the podcast, we really should have it because uh, if we don't know what the ICC is up to, then uh, we're not doing our jobs, are we, Steph? Absolutely. So I'm very happy that you managed to nab somebody from the ICC to talk to us. Well, I was very glad that somebody said that they would. So I um, asked the Office of the Prosecutor if they could explain from their point of view what's going on. I got hold of Nicole Sampson. She's a senior trial lawyer and head of the Libya Unified team. She told me that the initial impetus for what turned out to be this, what they call from the ICC, a joint team, was the large number of unfortunate and disastrous deaths of migrants at sea at the coast of Lampedusa in Italy in 2013, just as Margarita had explained in her Italy section. So at that time, around 2015, a group of us got together to informally share information and knowledge in relation to 
these crimes against migrants because it was becoming a huge, you know, and dramatically awful problem. So we're talking about an informal group at that point, sort of reacting to events on the ground. And it was the ICC together with the United Kingdom, Netherlands, Italy and Europol. But by 2016, Nicole said that this information sharing really started flowing. And in 2018, it was formalized into an agreement under a specific UN convention on transnational organized crime. And the ICC and Europol weren't formally partners in it. They were just, you know, taking part in some way. But that changed last year when the ICC formally joined the joint team. This was after Kareem Khan took over as prosecutor. It's one of the things that he's very strongly behind. And also Spain joined as well. So I asked Nicole, what do they actually do? We're looking at migration flows from the central Mediterranean route, which is Horn of Africa, Libya, onto Europe. It's a route where there are a lot of migrants, and uh, and we focus on issues related to the entire migrant smuggling scheme, so not just trafficking, smuggling, enslavement, but also murder, torture, hostage-taking, extortion, rape, or other forms of sexual slavery, the crimes that are being committed allegedly against migrants all the way through uh, their experience. And the goal is to end impunity of these uh, sort of key players on the route. We want to disrupt their business models. We clearly want arrests and prosecutions, but sometimes it also could uh, involve searches and seizures, potentially sanctions, etc. Okay, lots and lots of words, lots of different things that, that they're looking at, but what role precisely then does the ICC play? The ICC, for instance, we bring in strong knowledge of working in Libya because we've been doing that since 2011. So we're quite familiar with the context, the players, um, uh, the authorities as well. Uh, We bring in knowledge about, in particular, the contextual elements of war crimes and crimes against humanity. So we have expertise in those legal and factual investigative frameworks. We contribute as well through other means. I mean, we, we obtain and collect information that can then be used by the joint team. We jointly contribute to witness interviews as well, which are used by the joint team. She pointed out that she thought Italy was really best placed, for example, to, to debrief the migrants who are who are there coming in through the boats. Uh, Europol is absolutely critical to this joint team because of its amazing database. And then she stressed how they, as a whole team, have contacts at lots of different levels. I mean, personal contacts on the operational level, how they, they agree what's going on. The analysts get together and the investigators get together to share information they've been working on. Then they have tactical level discussions. And then they also have what she calls principal contacts, where the team leaders on all sides, that's the top prosecutors, come together once a year and kind of sign off on the, the new direction. It's a long-term commitment. I think all of the partners recognize that these are not issues that can be tackled in one year. So, of course, for me, the question, I'm sure it will be for you as as well, Steph, is, well, the original Security Council referral, thinking way back to the beginning of our podcast, you know, because that's why Kareem Khan's talking to the UN Security Council. He has to report back every six months because Libya was referred to the ICC way back more than 10 years ago, 2011. Does this actually connect in? There needs to be a sufficient link between the situation that was referred initially by the Security Council and the crimes underlying the referral. So the judges have been able to establish that 
where the, the conduct in question is connected to the ongoing armed conflict. So the armed conflict didn't end in 2011. It may have changed form. It, you know, there are periods where it's less active than others, but it has continued with a proliferation of militia groups and clashes between them and sometimes huge violence. You know, in Tripoli between 2014 and 2020, there's been an ongoing armed conflict, at least of an of internal nature, non-international. And so with the migrants' cases, what we look at is considering facts that connects migrant criminality to the ongoing armed conflict underlying the referral. And we can look at facts, you know, for example, migrants who might be forced to participate directly or indirectly in the armed conflict, which can happen, or whether the exploitation of migrants is funding the armed conflict. So the extortion that is happening, what's happening to that money is it being used to fuel the armed conflict, or whether any of the relevant actors who are operating detention facilities are or have been involved in the armed conflict or are affiliated with a party to the armed conflict. So these are just sort of some of the ways in which we can factually say that there is a link for migrants. And uh, we found that link with subsequent conduct, for example, executions and the Wafali uh, arrest warrant. Uh, the chamber was uh, satisfied that there was a link for violence that happened in 2016, 2017, and 18. So the ICC actually has quite a limited jurisdiction if you listen to what she has to say. But the joint team, so people in the Netherlands and in Italy aren't actually encumbered any way. They can do what they want. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because the thing here is that Khan is really stressing every time he does anything for the UN Security Council that he wants those cases that the UN Security Council refer to the ICC to have like extra gravitas or that he wants to make those focal points of what he's doing. And then on the other hand, he is kind of not playing them off to the to the national authorities, but but in a way he is. He he's he's running up to the limitations of what the ICC can do, and he can see that these local prosecutors might be quicker or easier for them to, to prosecute that. But then you have the point where, you know, for the victims, if you're prosecuting somebody just for membership of a criminal organization, does that do justice to kind of the gravity and the scale of the crimes that are that are being committed? And also, I mean, there is some uh, victims participation in the Dutch trial, but not as much as the ICC. But Nicole was very clear that the ICC can't do it all. It can't cover absolutely every possible crime that is being committed out of Libya. And this joint team is a perfect example of that vision in action. It started prior to this prosecutor coming, but these types of cooperation frameworks with states or other entities who have the capacity to assist it's the way that we need to engage in order to help stop crime, because we can't do it ourselves. So the question that, that I again came to after this is, so what is the ICC working on if, it's, if it has limitations and it can work you know, on stuff that is, has to be shown directly related that came out of the civil war? Which areas 
is it likely that the ICC will actually deal with? So there's the crimes actually physically in the detention facilities in Libya itself, possibly. We also saw, didn't we, that the prosecutor on that visit to Libya was at a mass grave in a place called Tahuna. And he was talking directly to the Libyan authorities, who are very different authorities in different parts of, of Libya. And Nicole Sampson said that he's really pressurizing for there to be accountability within Libya itself. So his engagement with the Libyan authorities was very much along the lines of, we want accountability. And it does not matter if that accountability comes through an ICC prosecution, through a prosecution in the Netherlands, or a prosecution in Libya. I also wondered about your question, you know, because this is what, what you're wondering about, is why the Dutch are not doing crimes against humanity or war crimes. And I assume that's the case also in Italy, that it's not crimes against humanity, it's not war crimes, it's other kinds of crimes that are going on. The prosecutor has also indicated that the crimes against migrants may constitute crimes against humanity and or, and or war crimes. And so that is something that we, we look into and we consider. And uh, although the prosecutions currently brought by Italy and the Netherlands are not on the basis of war crimes and crimes against humanity, we are we're hopeful that we can move into that direction. So will they? Won't they? It's still very unsure what we might actually see in the ICC's courts uh, here in The Hague. Absolutely. But I was struck in that first, that introduction that the Dutch prosecutor gave for the Walid case that I was attending, is how they did map very well the system and they had all the UN reports about how this migration route is going, where these people are kept and, and so it lays also maybe the groundwork for saying that this is something widespread and systematic. This is a system of camps. They, these people have a system, they have a method, and they work through that. So maybe if these cases go through, then the ICC can lean on that jurisdiction from local prosecutions to kind of maybe fast track a case through the ICC. The thing that struck me out of it all, I mean, not to be too rah, rah, rah about it, is that it is showing that the ICC doesn't want to just get stuck in the doldrums of we have some evidence, but we don't seem to be able to find the people to be able to put on trial. We will work with anywhere else that we can, as long as they're kind of legitimate authorities, in order to try to get some kind of justice going. So I liked very much the idea that, that they're just not prepared to sit on their hands. Absolutely. I think this is also a kind of blueprint of how you could have other regions looked at the same way where the ICC is cognizant that there is this universal jurisdiction bit that you could rope in other other countries to do part of the things because uh, Nicole is very right. The ICC cannot possibly do everything, not even in Libya, which is maybe even a relatively small situation compared to something like Ukraine, where it's blindingly obvious that they can't do everything. I'm conscious of not being a Libya specialist myself. So after our kind of quick skim over what's going on in various European countries in the ICC, I think we should also invite some Libya specialists in to tell us well what we should have asked in the end. So we'll try and do a podcast like that in the next couple of months as well. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I need to kind of uh, work up my Libya knowledge before uh, Walida and, and maybe Kidan actually go on trial in the Netherlands and I get to come for that. 
And also we wanted to say thank you to Margarita for not only letting us pressure you into using your Italian skills, but also making you come on the podcast and talk to us. And uh, remember everybody to sign up to our new Patreon, which you can find uh, online. Uh, we've already started our War Criminals book club and uh, via that you can help to buy Margarita a cup of coffee occasionally and uh, keep her funded so that she can carry on getting rid of the ums and the ahs in our podcast. Yes, please support us via Patreon or you could just put some money in our chip jar, which we'll also put on our site. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word.